Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today I'm going to start with a quote from Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. He was down here around Birmingham, Alabama to support the strikers in Brookwood at the Warrior Met Coal uh, facility. And they have been on strike for about 500 days, more than 500 days at this point. And he gave this quote. He said, it is a modern day David versus Goliath story where you have these multinational corporations, hyper millionaires who are doing the best to stamp out an Alabama working class movement. So today my guest is Hayden Wright, and she is one of the folks that is part of that Alabama working class movement. She is the WMUA auxiliary president of the locals 2245 and 2368. And Hayden, I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for making the time to get the information out that we would really like people to know about the strike here in Brookwood. Yeah, and I'm just going to give the caveat right off the bat that I told you before we started recording that I am extremely ignorant uh, to my shame about this because the more labor-oriented friends that I have have been asking me about y'all and I'm bringing you on here because I need to learn. Um, so hopefully the folks that are listening to this are, are in the same boat and, and I'm sure most uh, know more than me, but tell us why why the strike is going on and, and what um, the basic demands are. Okay, so we went out on strike of, on April 1st of 2021. So we've actually been on strike for 539 days. So this is the longest strike in Alabama history one of the longest strikes actually in the country. So it's been a really long time. But what we want people to understand is this all started because of the bankruptcy that was filed way back in 2016. What happened in that bankruptcy is the judge allowed the company to leave bankruptcy free and clear. That means that they didn't have to hire back any of the workers. They did not have to honor workers' pensions. We had members that had worked in those mines 35 years. And all of a sudden, the company was told, no, you don't have to pay them anymore. So the union spent the past five years fighting that battle. And we actually won, not just for our workers, but to protect the pensions for all workers. So that's a huge thing that the UNWA really pushed for. But at that bankruptcy, what that meant is we had to pretty much accept the contract they offered us. We had no negotiating power because the judge said they could just fire everyone. So we took massive concessions. So I know when we talk about concessions, a lot of times people think like, oh, well, it's probably a dollar an hour. No, these guys took $6 an hour cut and pay. Wow. That's huge. So most families went from being able to provide with one spouse working to now both spouses had to work. On top of that, they cut us down from 100% insurance which if you know anything about mining, the risk is huge. Every time your spouse, every time yourself, you go underground, you know there's a possibility that they might not come back out. Sure. 
So that was huge for families that we now had 80-20 healthcare coverage. So now it was thousands of dollars to even handle medical bills. They implemented a strike policy, which was basically three strikes and you're fired. They didn't take doctor's notes. If you couldn't give 24 hours notice of an emergency and did not show up for work, you'd be given a strike. Men were given strikes for wrecking on the way to the work for their spouse being in the hospital for being in labor. One was given a strike that I know about because his wife was having a miscarriage and he took an early out to go be with her and he was given a strike. So what it did is it puts a lot of pressure on your family at home as well, because every time one of our children were sick, we were sick, we had things going on, you had to make that choice. Do you even call and tell them or do you wait until after their shift? Because if not, they would have to make the decision, do I take care of my family or do I keep my job? I know for even myself, when I was in labor, my husband made it to the hospital 20 minutes before I went back for a C-section Wow! because I waited that long to try to call him. So maybe he wouldn't get a strike and miss work. So those are the conditions that families had lived under. There was no set days of the week. You had guys working seven days a week, 12 hours plus a day, up to eight, nine days in a row. You literally saw your family and your spouse, if you were lucky, an hour or two hours a day. So, I mean, it was extreme living under those conditions. So when this contract came up for negotiation, we had all had enough. You'd been living in five years of atrocious conditions, not just for your spouse out in the mind, but for your whole family. So that's why 95% of our membership voted no. 95% said, we won't agree to this. We won't take this treatment anymore. I'm kind of, I'm shocked, honestly. <laughs> You're describing that. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the inhumanity of large corporations never ceases to, never ceases to amaze me. So as far as progress that's been made, I guess we can maybe hit more on that in a minute, but what kind, of, what kind of progress, what kind of concessions have been offered from the Warrior Met company to the miners? Um, the first tentative agreement was basically a slap in the face. After we had been on strike for about two weeks, they did bring a tentative agreement to the membership. It did not address any of those concerns that I just talked about. All it did was it offered a dollar and 50 cent raise over the course of the contract. So a dollar and 50 cents over the course of five years. So not even keeping up with inflation, not even right. getting back to what we lost back in 2016. Um, it decreased the deductible about a hundred dollars for family. So basically nothing. Mm -hmm. And the strike policy, they said, well, now we'll give you six. But the wording there says after the third one, they could suspend you for a minimum of three days. They could suspend you and take you home for a week without pay. I mean, that's unbelievable that you would put families in that type of situation to where I can't provide for my family because my child was in the hospital or I was in the hospital. I mean, the way that they just treat people literally like a number, that if you died on the way to work or underground, they would literally replace you the next day that your life had no value to them whatsoever. And that's what it felt like for five years. Mm 
And for us, that's huge. I mean, this Friday, the 23rd is actually when we have our minors memorial, because actually back in 2011, we did have two explosions at number five plant, which is actually where my husband works in the prep plant. Hmm. He wasn't working there then, but my father was. My father was a minor at 2397 for 37 years. I remember when the explosion happened and we honored those guys and there were men that gave their life because they wouldn't leave a brother behind. One man was injured. They were ordered to leave and his brothers refused. And they all died that day. Wow. So we know as families that that could happen, that that could be our spouse, that that could be our dad. So that's something that's really close to us. So seeing the company literally disregard the value of someone's life and disregard their need to be there for their family. We couldn't take that anymore. So you have to fight back. And we're not just fighting for us because if a company with a union can try to treat someone so poorly, we have to fight for those workers that don't have that representation yet because we will not let that be a standard that other companies can set that it's okay to treat workers that way. Yeah, as you're describing it too, um, I'm just struck by kind of the historic overlap of how, how you know, African-Americans were treated in, in slavery and how specifically like Chinese immigrants were treated in the building of the railroads. And when you talk about, when you use the word precedent, I was like, the precedent's already there. I mean, <laughs> to treat people like this, I mean, I, you would, you would think that we wouldn't be going all the way back there. And of course, it's hard to go all the way back there, but this is many steps in the wrong direction, <laughs> at least. Um, I, I'm curious, can you fill us in a bit on just the existing sense of community and uh, like within the mining, within miners? Because that's, I know, again, like historically, Many of us have heard that or read about that, but most of us, I would guess, listening and certainly for myself, have not experienced that and, and are not, um, don't know that by experience. So talk about being a mining family and, and what that means. And I think the big thing about the mining community is if you don't have a spouse or a family member that actually works the mines, that you do have to grapple with long hours with the dangerous conditions, with the time away from your family, to learn to be really independent, to function within all of that. So it really takes someone else that lives through that to understand your experiences. So that's one thing that brings everyone so close together. That, and for the guys working, it is life or death. You have to be able to trust the people that you're working with to be safe. I mean, We've said several times throughout the strike, if you wouldn't leave a brother in the mine, then you wouldn't leave a brother on the line. And that's how we feel about the scabs that crossed. If you'll turn your back on us here, if you'll do harm to your union brother and union sister and your union siblings here by crossing and taking a union job, how could we ever trust to work with you again? Because mm -hmm. you've proven that you only care about yourself. And for us, the big thing is we're united. We are a family. We're going to take care of each other. 
that was one of the big pushes for even starting the auxiliary that we have and for doing the stripe pantry was you had executives at Warrior Met like Kelly Gantt saying openly in negotiations, we'll just starve you out. That you don't have the money, we'll starve you out. Unbelievable. That we have the ability to pay and give you everything that you're asking for, but we don't have the desire to. Those are open records of statements that they've made. So when you see a company that that's evil and other human beings that see other humans as being less than they are, that's something that can't be tolerated, that you can't sit back and do nothing. And if you remain neutral, there is no neutrality when you see workers being exploited. You're either pro-worker or you're pro-capitalism, you're pro-capital interest. If you're neutral and you don't fight back, you're just a bigger part of the problem. Mm. And especially in the South in a right-to-work state, that's been a big thing. A lot of people didn't even realize they could have a union. They don't realize what a union can do. They've never had the benefit of wind garden rights, negotiating a contract. So these are conversations that we've had because of our experiences on strike. Yeah, I'm curious, you're the outside support, or at least within your community, particularly the religious faith communities around um, part of, <laughs> Part of what I like to explore in these conversations is either the positive or negative influence that the church and in particular and um, religious folks have on on these issues that affect all of us every day and and certainly y'all super acutely in this so I'm curious what support has looked like from the outside and particularly from the faith community, either around y'all in Brookwood or the South or, or regionally or, or nationally? Um, unfortunately, I can't say that there's been any overwhelming of one group or church or denomination that I can say has really you know, shown up and offered aid or support. I mean, a lot of our members do attend church but it seems to be more neutral. Mm -hmm. They're not really voicing a pro-worker stance or an anti-worker stance. And again, like I said, now's not the time to sit on the fence. Um, so unfortunately, I can't say that I can point to any one group and say that they've really been there. Now our membership, I mean, most of us are Christian. We do go to church. We open up our rallies with prayer but again, that goes back to our own sense of community, that we pray with each other, we pray for each other. We, when we have members or family members pass away, we take them food, mm -hmm. we reach out to each other. So it kind of goes back to, we're our own community when it comes to that. Um, Grace Klein community has been great about doing food donations since the beginning of the strike. So that's one organization that's helped, that is faith-based but that's not necessarily a church group. That's a theme that I've unfortunately traced throughout a lot of the things that, that I that I find as moral imperatives, whether it be war or labor rights or um, even racial justice. I think that's a pretty clear place where the larger white evangelical church has ceded all moral ground and, and uh, 
sort of a frantic way. Um, but yeah, the I think I was I was hoping that you were going to surprise me in that. <laughs> um, and yeah, and like yeah. I will say, most of us are mm-hmm. religious. So for us, we see God is providing and helping sustain the strike that we are fighting a just fight, that what we are doing is morally right, but he's providing that support to our fellow workers. Mm-hmm. He's providing that support to our fellow unions. He's providing that support through solidarity with each other, mm-hmm. not solidarity with the specific group. And I'm wondering too, the, the wider community. So maybe outside of faith community, I know like when I was at, I think I either met you or someone referred me to you at the um, at the Amazon workers strike um, over here in Bessemer, and I I say that because we were all masked and uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's hard to remember if fa- I'm not good at remembering faces to begin with, but certainly not with a mask. But um, so I know that I know that Brookwood was there supporting that big time. Um, and I'm curious what support, whether it's other unions or other organizations, again, regionally in the state um, or nationally that has that have come alongside y'all. Yes, we did meet at the RDD. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, because my husband Braxton, while we've been on strike, he actually went to Amazon way back in September of last year to try to help with organizing there with RWDSU. Yes, okay, I remember, I remember now, yeah. yes, okay. And we've also, the UNWA has also been involved with some of the sip-ins for Starbucks in Birmingham. You know, Birmingham was the first unionized Starbucks in Alabama. Yep. We actually showed up two separate times for sip-ins to share solidarity with them. And I think that really does show the power of workers when they do come together, that even though we're in the midst of this huge fight, that we've been on strike for now 539 days, we're still showing up for our fellow workers. If someone else is fighting, we're still going to be there to support them. And that same has been reciprocated back to us. So all of our brothers and sisters and union siblings and AFL-CIO locals, they've all been very supportive. So Sarah Nelson with the Flight Attendant Association, she's been down here several times, amazing speaker. Absolutely love her, very supportive. Um, Stuart Applebaum has been out to our picket lines, been very supportive, spoke in New York with us when we were there protesting out at BlackRock. And yeah, so our fellow unions have really shown up. And that's what people need to understand. When you join a union, it's not just about your abbreviation. I might be UMWA, but if AFT, USW, the Teamsters, when they have a need and there's an injustice going on, you have 6 million brothers and sisters that are ready to rally around you. And what's been really remarkable is a lot of the support we've gotten is for people that don't have a union, but that see that we're not just fighting for ourselves. They see what we're doing is important and we, they know that it's worth doing. And so we've had people that work at Walmart send letters with $25 that they've taken mm-hmm. up a collection. And they're like, we see what's happening and we're with you. We wish we had a union to represent us. And those type of things also make the fight worth continuing. That people are seeing that I am being exploited. And if we stand together, we can't outlast a company that said that they could crush you. 
there's so many different ways I want to go right now because there it's just an incredible story and I think there is there's just so much here that I know I don't interact with near enough and and many of us don't I, I guess I guess want to ask about the longevity and I, w- I would say the relative lack of coverage of the Brookwood strike. I mean, you mentioned Starbucks, you mentioned Amazon, those are getting huge publicity, which well, they should. Um, even minor league baseball, I don't know if you have seen uh, the minor league ball players are going on strike and or not on strike, but they're unionizing. Um, maybe they'll go on strike at some point, but they're, they're finally unionizing, which is an incredible movement there. But as far as I can see, like Kim Kelly is has been covering this really consistently over the the past two years. Like I said, five hundred and thirty six days as we talk. But I'm curious. My sense is, and this is I'm going to guess, and I want to I want your feedback and your response to this. But when you look at our kind of political culture and what we're what we're meant to support um starbucks amazon like those represent especially to those of us that are more middle class that live in cities we know those very well and we know we're very close to understanding like the the evils of these corporations and they're corporations that we interact with all the time even for me as a complete like addict to baseball I've learned about that the day that it started. And and y'all, I mean, coal miners, like it's, that's something that's, again, like historically, I think it, it's easy to to have like a lot of empathy for and, and like solidarity with, but like as it's happening now, there seems like this cultural divide that that almost kind of obscures or maybe it highlights the the hard work y'all are doing that really is costing you, but you're in rural Alabama mining coal. So I don't, so I, I see that as a real cultural, I don't know, oversight or like it's an obscuring of really what's going on. So I don't know if that made sense, but if it did respond, if not, tell me it didn't make sense. Yes. Well, let's just be honest. When people hear cold, they think about coal use for energy. Yep. They think about climate change. They think about the Green New Deal. They don't understand that there's different types of coal used for completely separate purposes. So for us here in Alabama, we mine metallurgical coal. Metallurgical coal is required in the process for making steel. You have to have coking coal, which is metallurgical coal, to create steel. So we're actually part of the sustainable energy chain. If you need steel for infrastructure, for windmills, for solar panels, that's what our product is used for. Our product actually burns at a temperature that's extremely high. That's what makes it good for molten steel. You cannot use it to produce energy. That's thermal coal. So it's two industries that when you hear coal miner, we're mining two different products, Hmm. but that's never been made clear 
in any type of discussion from politicians or the media. So it's not people's fault that they don't understand that. I mean, it's really not. Because unless you live in a community to where coal mining is a part of your life, there's no way that you would know that. And then for the Republicans, they're not here to support us because they don't like unions. Mm -hmm. They don't like workers rising up and asking for better. Then you have the Democratic Party who is pushing green energy. So them seeing supporting coal, they're like, oh, that might hurt us in the polls. But it's because they also don't understand that, wait, I should dig a little bit deeper and actually talk to people, get to know the people working in these industries. Because I don't care what industry you're working in, every worker deserves to be treated with dignity and respect in the workplace. They deserve not to be exploited and to have millionaires profiting off the backs of their labors, every worker, no matter the industry. So that's one thing I really wish people understood more. And I know I myself this time because I was fed up with it. I was fed up with neither party in our state coming out and supporting workers. I ran as a Democrat this time. And I won my seat on the SDC for House District 49. At the SDC convention, I was elected to sit on the Democratic Executive Board for Congressional District 6. I'm the vice chair for the Youth Caucus for Alabama Democrats, along with several other labor organizers and young labor leaders in Alabama. We got together and we said, we've had enough. It's time that we have a party in Alabama that's looking out for us, that's looking out for the people. So we didn't sit idly back. We ran, we showed up, and we said, we are going to have a voice. And I think that's what we have to do, not just on the picket lines, But if we want to see change happen, we can't let apathy get the best of us, that there's nothing we can do. No, that's what capital, that's what people want you to think. When we come together and we say we're not going to take this anymore, they might be small changes. It might take time. It might take a lot of energy. But change can happen when we fight for change together. That's really powerful, Hayden. That's really strong and and. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm so grateful for, for what education you've given me in this conversation. And yeah, just the, the importance too of, of any, any work. I mean, any work that is done, like people deserve to be treated well. People don't deserve to be, have their wages cut by $6 an hour and to be ghosts to their families. And um, and so it's, it should be, if the Democratic Party was the, the party of the workers, as, uh, as the claim is, like, it should be an easy, easy call. And I'm glad that you're infiltrating the Alabama Democratic Party. And, um, and I, like, it's, it's time to shake that up. It's time to challenge that locally and, and nationally. And I'm, I'm, I think you're doing awesome work in that. So uh, other work that you're doing, like I said, is the work with the food pantry. So tell me about the food pantry that you guys have going on. I've I've worked myself in um, food banks and food pantries many times. That's part of my day job right now. Um, So talk to me about what hunger looks like there and what you guys are doing about it 
to sustain the the strike and um, keep the pressure on. So we went on strike in April. By May, we had a meeting. A lot of us that were spouses, retired coal miners, family members, actually got together and local 2397 already had an auxiliary. There was a lot of older ladies and gentlemen that were retirees. We got together and created one that was most of us that spouses were currently striking or that we were striking ourselves. So we got together and we're like, what can we do? That we have to do something to show support to help people. And we started putting out on Twitter, like, hey, we're on strike here in Alabama. Nobody's listening to us. Nobody knows. And that's actually the first time I met Kim. She saw me posting on Twitter. We talked. She came down to Alabama. We met. Now we talk almost every day. And every single thing that we purchase for the pantry comes through donations. You have to think we're doing at least 100 pantry bags a week at least. On top of that, we're providing hygiene products like shampoo, conditioner, razors, toothpaste, things that sometimes we took for granted before that now at the end of the month, you might not have money for. And baby items. It's been incredible because we've seen myself. I have a not even two-year-old yet, a 19-month-old. She was four months old when we went on strike. So we've seen a lot of our kids because what people understand, these aren't old men. The people here fighting now are young people with families. Sure. And we've seen them go from wearing size one or newborn diapers to now we're buying pull-ups. So we provide that. That's a huge expense. And when you're a parent, thinking that you might not have formula or diapers for your baby, that can be a huge factor in what you can do. So we've been able to provide that. And you're looking about a cost of about $8,000 a month to be able to feed families, to provide those items that are necessities to survive. Then to feed families at the rallies that we have, we were having them every week. Now they're bi-weekly. So we provide those meals. We provide that and just a safe space to come and talk to people that are having that same experience to where we know exactly what you're going through. And we understand that. So again, it goes back to our sense of community with each other to be able to eat together every week, to rally together every week. And we have amazing women in the auxiliary. Um, Connie is our vice president, chair is our financial secretary. I mean, Lori, we all have young kids. All of us have kids that are under 13. So we're out doing this. We have full-time jobs. Our kids are there with us. So that's something unusual for people. Our kids are out on those picket lines. Our kids are at those union rallies. Our kids are coming to those sit-ins because we're teaching our children that it's okay to fight for yourself and it's okay to fight for other people. If you're being mistreated, it's okay to say you don't deserve that. And you have every right to stand on the side of the road, like Cecil said, and call a scab a scab. We're teaching our children that they have to fight, that they can't sit back and just be a bystander. And that's huge. I mean, these kids are going to be a force in a few years because they've grown up being told that they're valuable, that they're worth fighting for, that we're fighting for you, we're fighting for our families. 
And then when you bring in the experience of some of the retirees, like Miss Dale, Miss Deborah, Miss Pearlie, Miss Mary, that were coal miners, female coal miners back in the 70s and 80s, when women, that was not a, considered a woman's job or proper. Sure. And they were down mining coal and they have all this life experience that they can come in and say, look, I was doing this when people didn't say women could. I mean, that's inspirational to me. And then to see them still there, even though they're retired, they have a pension, but they're still coming back and fighting for us because they know how important a union is. Because when they started, the union didn't care if you were a man, a woman, black, white, what your sexuality was. You were a union sibling and the union protected you. And I think that goes back really to the history of the UMWA that a lot of people don't realize. UMWA broke Jim Crow laws here in Alabama and had integrated unions when it was illegal. The UMWA's first constitution was written in 52 languages because they wanted all minors to be a part of the union. And at that point, you know, coal camps were breaking people up by ethnicity to try to keep workers from organizing. The UMWA broke down those barriers. So we see the history and that's a history worth protecting to not fight now would be disrespecting all the ones that fought and died for what we have. So tell us how we can show solidarity with y'all, how we can, what support would look like from, from those of us either, uh, I'm in Birmingham, so whether we're nearby or or far away, what, what kind of support would be helpful for y'all? Come, if you're local, come out to a rally. Just share your support. Come and talk to us. Don't be intimidated to stop at a picket line. I mean, it was one of our favorite moments in the past several months when we had a history major from the University of Alabama drive by and turn around to stop and talk to us on a picket line because she was so excited to see a group of women out picketing that she wanted to know more about what was happening. Don't be afraid to come and talk to people. That's not just our picket line. Anytime you see a picket line, stop and talk to the workers, hear their story, because I can promise you every individual out on that picket line has their own reasons for being there. Things that this contract caused to their family, that's personal to them. Because we all had shared experiences, but there are things that having one-on-one conversations with people will show you. Um, If you're not local or you can't make it down, the International has a strike aid fund set up for strikers um, after they reach a certain amount they give an extra check to families and that could really help cover like medications emergency expenses that can come up while we're on strike and then our strike pantry we have a paypal link that you can donate specifically to the strike pantry or you can send a check to district 20 made out to the umwa auxiliary 2245 2368 and for the second time we're getting geared back up for solidarity santa which was absolutely incredible last year. And we're getting ready, you know, hopefully we have a contract by then. And if not, that's okay. We're going to have a meal together and we're going to try to make sure that our union kids have Santa. And that's what we were able to do last year. We had 200, over 200 kids receive Santa thanks to our fellow workers. So that's getting ready to start back up. So we're not close to giving up or giving in. We had plans all the way through December. We're here to stay and we're here to fight. That's awesome. We, uh, 
what's the sense of where the company is? What's the sense of, like you said, there's there's scabs that are that are working there. Um, where does it seem like there's like there's an opening there? Does it seem like they're they are starting to bend a little bit, or are they still keeping their posture? The UMWA, we've been ready to negotiate a fair contract and negotiating good faith since we went out on strike. Warrior Met has prolonged the strike. Yeah, right. So it's up to them to come to the table with an agreement that addresses the concerns we've talked about. I mean, the union knows. That's why they haven't even brought forth another tentative, because they know unless those needs are addressed, then it's not worthy of even being brought towards the membership. Um, the latest play, we've been faced with injunctions since about a month into the strike. At one point, we weren't allowed anyone on a picket line. And by anyone, I mean, if they've included us in the auxiliary, anybody, like if we were talking right now, you would have oh. been considered conspiring with me. You couldn't have been on a picket line or we would have actually been held in contempt of court, even though we had never done anything wrong. Mm. We had done nothing but walk a picket line. Sure. We have... KIV and the government in Alabama paying state troopers to escort scabs into the mine site, which is a real slap in the face when you're out there, you know, fighting for your jobs. So we've seen all of that. Um, the last thing that the company did, and this happened in the past week, they've been saying for several months, they had 40 people they refused to hire back. Well, the problem is NLRB says that we're on an unfair labor practice strike. You cannot terminate an employee on an unfair labor practice strike unless there has been a severe misconduct, severe misconduct. So they have a list of 40 people. We've been requesting that list for months. We didn't receive that list until about two weeks ago. Um, several of the members on there have never done anything wrong, never had any type of reports for the police, Never been asked by security to leave the premises. Literally have done nothing but walk a picket line. But they don't want to bring those 40 back. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. It is skewed. There are more minority hmm. members on there than what should be. Sure. And most of them are over 40 years old, which means they have high seniority numbers. Yeah. So I'm not saying that was intentional, but the math that's is how, uh, yeah. not not a good uh, test testimony to good faith, in other words. No, so it's not a good testimony to good faith. And then they've come back and they're like, well, we're not saying that they're fired because they know that's illegal. Well, if you're saying you're not going to, re to bring someone back, what else do you call that besides termination or you're fired? So we've actually, you know, of course, the union is handling that. They're refusing. The company actually said they wanted the union to agree not to even represent those individuals, that they wanted to just be able to like let them go with the union not having any say whatsoever. Hmm. So, of course, that's not going to happen. So the UMWA is making sure that those 40 are taken care of. And so that's where we are. I mean, we're waiting for them to come to the table and finally negotiating good faith, which is what they should be legally obligated to do. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy doing a lot more good than than talking to me, but I'm glad that you took a took an hour out to to do that as well. Um, yeah, I, I want to stay in touch. I want to keep um, hearing and 
Um, what's the best day to come out there if, and, and see you guys? Um, we have Riley's every other Wednesday in Brookwood at 2397 Hall. It's right off the side of 216. You can't miss us. You'll see all the camouflage. And then we do run picket lines daily in the mornings and in the evenings. So if you're coming by, honk, wave, come grab some coffee with people. So we're still there. And we would love to have any support anybody wanted to give. Right on. Well, let's stay in touch. Best of luck to you, to your family, to all of the miners there in Brookwood. And I hope that everyone listening here can do what, do what we can to, to keep, um, keep you guys in our thoughts. Um, for those that pray and are in our prayers and, um, for those that have some cash, uh, to throw some money at you guys as well and show some, some support that way. <laughs> well, I'm just glad that you got with me and we got to talk today. I appreciate it. This is really what's important. It's just letting people know about what's happening because there has been such a lack of coverage locally that people need to know that this fight is happening here in Alabama. So I really appreciate you taking the time to tell the story. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.